or wherever the heck you are, fellow internet Denzians. Uh, this is the Tech Off Topic podcast. I am your host, Mike Ellsmore. Um, it's been a crazy period for me, and I'm getting back into this podcasting malarkey because you know what? I like doing it and talking to people, especially when zombie apocalypse and I haven't seen anybody in ages. is actually quite fun. Uh, so I'm going to add our guest today and let him introduce himself because I think it would be easier than me screwing it up. Say hello. How you doing, Mike? Hey. Hey, long time no see. So for those that don't know, I'm Marcus Noble. Uh, I am a principal DevOps engineer working for Elsevier. Uh, my predominant role is working on things, Kubernetes containers and you know, platform-based stuff. Uh, previously, I've been a, a JavaScript developer and a, a previous organizer of JS Oxford. Um, these days, it's more uh, Go and Bash scripts for me, so living more in the, in the ops world these days. So, fun times. That's surprising you didn't say Ruby, because considering Ruby is still one of the defaults for ops scripting. Oh, it's Python. It's Python for, for us. Mm. I was just meaning all the configuration tools. For example, oh, there's a yeah, level yeah. of ops where it just goes from I am a developer to I write YAML with Ruby inserts. Yeah, so I've, I'm at the point where I write YAML with Go templating. So. Uh, the internet <laughs> has evolved. Yeah, yeah. No longer using auto-magical Ruby tooling that should have been a Rails app and actually became an internet legend. Here's looking at you, <laughs> chef, puppet, and everything else. Yeah. Oh, well. So DevOps principal... Hang on. Principal DevOps engineer. What yeah. the heck does that actually mean? I don't know. I don't know. So, yeah, I, I don't like the term DevOps engineer because it's, it's, not, it's not really a role. It's a, it's a kind of way of, of, of doing your work. But as far as I can tell, really, it's a mentality for getting stuff done. Yeah, 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 basically, yeah. So like all all developers, I say all, developers in a, in a, in a multi-discipline um, uh, squad, you know, it, it should at least try and embrace kind of a DevOps mentality. My role is just called that because it's, you know, we're in a big organization, they need a title. My actual role is really kind of R&D slash building tooling for other teams within the organization. Um, so I, my job really is to make other devs' lives easier within the org. Okay, so uh, for those of you who are not aware of the DevOps engineer role or DevOps in general, um, I would suggest Googling around, uh, well, I think DevOps.com would be a good start because it gives you a lot of the big broad theory pieces and vendors. Uh, and from what Marx has just described, it's like, my job is to find, build, and research tooling to make other developers suck less at shipping code. Not necessarily suck less at building code, just suck less at shipping it. Yeah, for the most part, yeah. And to, and to try and commonalize, com commonalize and re re remove duplication. <laughs> I was getting tongue-tied. Uh, yeah. It's a great yeah. way for a podcast when we can't speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah gonna, this is going to go swimmingly. Okay, well, I'm going to avoid asking about the uh, work portion now. 
purely because I do want to ask about Kubernetes because I'm actually going for a self-learning discovery phase at that bit at the moment. Uh, but I actually want to ask you about the home stuff because yeah. I have seen the tweets over the last 12 months. Uh, I have I've even asked questions uh, over on Twitter occasionally. Um, so your home infrastructure and your like private uh, laboratory space Hey, yeah, there is there is a Kubernetes setup. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, because I, I remember there was a post about you uh, because your original Kubernetes setup was built on the Docker engine build, and you had to do the switch from there. I think I've got to do all sorts of switches. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but like, yeah. cool. So you have a lab space where you can actually ship your own stuff to play with. Mm -hmm. So yeah. why do you have your own lab space? Because I think this is a tinkerer thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's. it's it's kind of evolved to this sort of point. Um, so for as long as I can remember, really, um, I've, I've been the sort of person that kind of likes, I just say, tinkering with these kind of things. And I've had my own personal servers in one form or another. So whether that's, you know, a machine at home or whether it's a VPS on a cheap VPS provider or a cloud provider or whatever. Over the years, I've, I've, I've had these kind of evolved um, the main reason that I that I have them is because I I like to automate as much as my life as I can, and and having, you know, a, a dedicated uh, platform for me to then go and deploy all these stuff to uh, is fantastic. And the fact that I work on Kubernetes twenty four seven at work sort of thing, you know, it it just makes it easier at home to to use the same technology because then I can do what what I learn at home, I can use at work, what I learn at work, I can use at home, etc. Um, and the whole, the reason that I'm now, or Kubernetes based, whereas previously it was um, kind of just a server with apps installed onto it, um, it is the whole portability and, and um, the self-healing side of things. Um, so like I've, my, the, the, the personal Kubernetes that I've got at, at home in my, in my local network, I've rebuilt that uh, maybe four times now um, with minimal kind of interruption like i've been able to get everything back at least within a day of me working on it um so the whole the, the ability that i can then bring all that stuff back and move it around and all that kind of thing is, is fantastic okay for a point of reference how do you do you've done four rebuilds in how long uh of the kubernetes cluster or in general uh, just of the kubernetes oh because if it's in general like the Linux <laughs> box that I have that's been dotted around my apartment and is currently off and has been in the cupboard for four months. Uh, that's yeah. been rebuilt, as far as I can tell, about one million times in these seven years that it's been sat there. So how long is that? Because like, it's been oh, it's so easy. I've rebuilt it four times. If you only built it last weekend, four times is a bad sign. <laughs> yeah, so uh, let's say probably within the last three years. Oh, wow. That's like yeah. a just a decent upgrade window. That's, oh, I'm going to spend a yeah. weekend just patching the actual OS, patching, uh, upgrade patching the actual engines. So so some of that was actually moving hardware. So I was originally on a, an old desktop machine, um, did that. I, I, when the Raspberry Pi 4 was out and was had enough grunt to kind of run this kind of thing, I switched to using that um, with a lot of ARM-based stuff. Didn't work out too great. Um, you know, it meant that I had to rebuild a few things uh, yeah. as an arm image rather than as well. Not too bad. It got there in the end, but it was a bit of a pain. 
main issue with that is I had um, some sort of stability issues. So it kept just randomly uh, losing connection to the network. It kept um, stalling and things like that. Um, it's probably because I was taxing it too much. I had fairly high CPU usage. It was like 90% odd constantly. Um, so then, you know, I, I moved it back to a, to a kind of a beefy-ish old desktop machine. And that's what I've currently got. I've also got like cloud-based ones as well and stuff that they're like managed and yeah, I remember that because we're both part of the Sevo hundred, if I remember correctly. So yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got uh, on Sevo as well. So I'd use that more as a the test playground. It, it's my dumping ground for those. trying rando yeah. stuff at the moment because I don't trust it, but it's good enough to try. Uh, it's it's pretty good. So their K three S offering is is brilliant. It's, it's really good. Um, I highly recommend it. Uh, but oh no, my... it's just the general outages they seem to have periodically, which yeah. is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I, that that was what prompted me to move my cloud-based stuff away, um, and now with Scaleway. Scaleway, so that's a French, new one on me. Yeah, French company. So they've got data centers in France and uh, Amsterdam. I think is where the other ones based. Oh, he um, but Yeah, but they they've they've got a, a managed Kubernetes platform called Capsule with a with a K because Kubernetes. Um, they so they've been they've been great with me so far. Um, best thing I like about them is they seem to be only like a week behind releasing updates for Kubernetes from like major versions. So like what I'm on one, yeah, I'm on one twenty with them now. I think and they they su supported one twenty. I think it was about a week after it was officially released. Hang so on, I'm so like they're really keeping impressive. really on top of LTS. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very impressive. That's and they're, they're, weird. they're really kind of fleshing that out. So they've got like also um, upgrade capabilities of your note of your worker nodes and things like that. And yeah, so I, I, I recommend it. That's where I've got all my um, internet based stuff. Okay, so if you have a personal lab and you have internet based stuff because tinkering and you want to be able to access APIs on the internet without, you know, intrusive security holes into your own home network, which is why I'm assuming you have your lab split into split into some interwebby stuff and local stuff i may be wrong please correct me yeah but partly that yeah um so yeah, yeah you've got so I'm, I'm i'm just curious like because like, i met you through the hackathon scene yeah um and uh for those of you who are listening uh Marcus is wearing one of the proudest things I ever produced, which is the snapbacks <laughs> with the hacker branding for Hackfronts. That thing I created, God, like, what, three, four years ago? Four? Gotta be. Yes, gotta yeah. And they were in such limited supply that people were trying to chop my bloody hand off for them for the sake of three <laughs> days. But I love them, and um, I love the hacker scene. It's where I came from. It's um, where I've met Marcus and uh, people like Callum Hendricks and stuff like. It's yeah, like it's mm. an amazing crowd of people. So, what yeah, are you playing with on the internet then? If because one of our talking points is something that's not on the internet. Well, it's internet connected, but not. So I'm curious yeah. what internety stuff you're playing with. So quite a lot. So I, I I've gone through a phase the past uh, two odd years of trying to move off like big cloud uh, SaaS providers. So trying to de-Google myself and all this kind of thing and go more self-hosted. So I've got a lot of like uh, open source self-hosted alternatives to, to cloud things. I've got um, a next cloud on there, just like a, a Google Drive, Dropbox style alternative file storage. 
I've got um, uh, a matrix and element set up on there for a, for a chat server for me and my family. I've got um, my own photos app on there, you know, th things like that. So a lot of like, uh, I think, yeah, clones of, of kind of Google or Microsoft or Apple big applications, but then I can own the data myself and I can have more control over it. And it means then that I can also tinker with it some more and, and tweak it to just my liking. So I've got a lot of that sort of stuff. Hmm. Hang on, this all right. So I've got a talking point on this, which is the evolution of the internet. And you have just mm. like in the last 12 minutes, we have gone full circle. So like <laughs> um considering we've been an engine we've been engineers about the same length of time, like 13, 14 years. Um well, I've been 12, I think you're only a couple of years older than me, so I think it's like that. Um we're looking at the internet. So when uh, shipping code for the internet, it was um, a box in somebody's data center. It was a shared resource material. And then and about and 10... Yeah. And then 10 or so years ago, there was the uh, slew of people selling reseller Xenon racks. Um, you know, hopefully hosted, no actual support, but they were cheap. Yeah, and that's then... how I got it to... <laughs> yeah, uh, I there was a guy called Carl that I used to have to get on the phone to fix stuff for our, the company I worked for when stuff went sideways. And Carl was the MD, the tech support. The it's like, oh, didn't take long to realize it was one man band holding up the entire PR company I was working for initially. Oops. Yeah. And then since then we've gone full cloudy. So we've got AWS like um, circa what was it twenty. 13, 2012, 2013, when they started making inroads? Yeah, around there, I think. Not and then sure. everything else exploded. And then we've we've gone from having not just compute to APIs out of the Wahoo doing all sorts of stuff. And now, in the last two years, you're flipping that. You're, you're removing the cloud compute part of it, the AWS GCP as your bit, and going backwards. Wow. Not exactly, not exactly. Oh. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it is still on a cloud. It is, you know, it, this is all up on, on my scale-away clusters. I mean, it's still leveraging their data centers and all that compute power that's that's available. So I've, I've still got those benefits. All I'm trying to get from this is, is the whole like privacy and security kind of aspect of it. So rather than giving Google or Amazon or whatever, all this, huge amounts of data about me or you know, whatever i get to keep all that myself and 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 have full control over what is effectively my own data now right. that's not that's not like a uh you know i don't go to the whole philosophical level with it i i have i still have like cloud based stuff so i've got like apple icloud and i've got various google things and all that kind of thing so it's not it's not like a, a you know remove the whole thing it's just that I, I like to be able to have that sort of control. I've have, I've had scenarios. I mean, you've seen the amount of Google services that have been canned over the years. You know, the, the whole uh, Google graveyard thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I've been bit by that a few times. So Google Reader, fantastic RSS reader back in the day. I've now gone and built my own reader just, just for my own purposes. And I've got that self-hosted. Everybody has because no other product existed that was like, even I have one, it's a Lambda that does it for me. Exactly. 
So it's, it's this kind of thing. So you get the whole guarantee that your stuff, mm. I guarantee, I don't, to an extent. You get your things stuff, the way you want them. Exactly, yeah. I, I, I'm very much like to be able to tweak things. And, and because I change my mind over, the, over time, I like to be able to have that ability to change things down the line as well. So being able to have you know direct access to the code to the to the infrastructure to the stuff underneath, I have that capability. Okay. Whether so I it's not do leverage it or not. Yeah. Okay. So it's not running away from the cloudy internet. It's just having more control over your own cloudy internet. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Okay. And talking about it control. Is, it, well, it also kind of goes back into the portability aspect. That I was talking about portability. So because I own the data, moving mm. it from that service that I've chosen, that, that, you know, that open source product that I've chosen to another one is yeah. theoretically easier because I've got direct access to the, the data of some form. And because it's something that I, I can control, there's theoretically is some way that I can get that out easily and put it into another one easily. A good example for that is uh, Git. So I, I run a, a Git T instance for all my uh, Git repos, which means that, you know, I, I use that. It's got a web interface that so I can interact with it like I do with GitHub or whatever, but under the hood, it's all stored um, on, on a persistent drive that, that, that I've got control of. And if I ever need to get stuff off of that and move it to another provider, that's not a problem. I've also gone and uh, set up a sync from that Git T to every other cloud Git provider, so GitHub, GitLab, Git, uh, sorry, Bitbucket, um, from my Git T so that I, those, those repos are then available everywhere for people to contribute to if they so choose, that kind of ah. thing. So you, it's, that, it's that having that more control over all these sort of aspects. I was about to ask about that, you know, like, because there's one thing that's very common with like, oh, I'm going to do it myself. So people starting to run their entire um, audio entertainment lives off Plex server sort of thing. And then people go, yeah. oh, my NAS has died. So is everything that you own how the heck are you dealing with the redundancy? So with, with your Git, you literally have it cloned to everything. What all, about all the public the... stuff, yeah. Well, yeah, but oh, yes, we'll, we, we'll only ever talk about the public stuff because in the private <laughs> stuff, there is code that should be left to die um, and uh, the occasional key that should not be allowed on the internet. Oh, no, none of that. None of that. Oh, I put money in. There's a, there's a repo you have probably that's a few years <laughs> old now where you've accidentally still left a key in there. It'll be your key if anybody's, it's fine. That wouldn't <laughs> surprise me at all, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but, okay. So what about the Kubes cluster? Considering you're running, like, well, not the Kubes cluster, but just the applications you're running, because I'm assuming not everything is Kubernetes. I'm assuming there is some, like, just uh, OS stuff that you have that didn't, well, wasn't worth containerizing. Nope. You've no. containerized everything? Because not all projects, not all OSS projects come with a Kubernetes compliant uh, container. Yeah, you got to get creative. Um, there's not there's not many that I'm running that, from the open source projects that I've not been able to just either find a Helm package for so I can just deploy it nice and easily to Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. um, or, or a Docker image already, either, either from the project itself or from a, a third party that does just all the needed there's been think, maybe a couple instances where i've had to kind of tweak it a bit so there's been a docker image but kind of getting persistent configuration in there may not have been possible so i've, I've done it like 
I've had instances where I've created a, a, an init container within Kubernetes um, that runs just like a, just, just runs bash, runs a bash image, bash container and like copies that container over to a, to a shared volume between the two containers. Uh, and I can then get the persistence that way. Um, mm. So I've done, yeah, I've done things like that before. Um, I think there's, there was one occasion where um, I had to kind of build from scratch, um, but, but this was back when uh, I was doing it on the Raspberry Pi, so I needed an ARM image, um, and yeah, it's getting better. I'm, I'm hoping that the you know the new Macs with ARM processors and the whole AWS pushing a bunch of ARM processors and stuff is going to improve things, um, but yeah. I just hope people aren't going to get lazy and only deploy one or other image. If we're going to, if we're and finally entering the realm where uh, licensed hardware means we get to have both advantages of cheap ARM processors for buck tons of cores and Intel processors for hyperthreaders, uh, hyperthreading mm -hmm. supervisor, etc. Because ARM, um, yeah, the multi-threading is not yeah. fantastic. But that's the one thing you still want to be able to run. You know stuff on intel where you can go well thread management super easy all the virtual threads mm. um yeah i hope they start getting to the point where people are going to just ship like they do with every open source binary here is the mac the linux the windows mm. binary have fun it's all gone through so a jenkins it, build in 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 docker it, it, well in containers i should say docker it's it's it, Kind of nice you can have these these um, uh, multi-arch images. So you, you, you publish an image with a, a manifest that says, for this architecture, it's this. For this architecture, it's this. So you can still publish a single image, mm. but have it contain multiple architectures. And depending on which architecture is pulling that image down to run on, it will query for that correct built architecture and pull that down. Okay. Which is quite nice. Um, it's still a little... Flaky. Um, is it not flaky? It's a bit involved as, into building one of these. There's, there's a few steps um, you kind of have to do because um, you have to build each architecture image individually and then add them to this manifest and then push it up. Um, but the, the, if you if you use the experimental Docker build X um, functionality, there's a lot of stuff in there that, that allows you to kind of easily do it. Um, especially if you're using like if you're building like Go, where you can do cross architecture compilation. Uh, it makes it much easier because you can pass into the Docker image what architecture you're wanting to, to target and build it that way. Uh, but for things where you actually need to build on that architecture, it's, it's tricky. Okay. Ah, you still haven't answered the question of redundancy, though. Where, where, how do you make all that stuff? Because uh, that, from the way you've described it, that's got a lot of personal data, like the stuff that you care about, uh, not necessarily like passport information and all that jazz, but like family photos. Cause I'm assuming that's where most of the photos of your kids that you've backed up are. How yeah, are you yeah. backing that stuff up? Like, do you then persist that locally to your home network or are you duplicating it or are you following yeah. N over three rules? So most of my documents and stuff that I care about is, is on my next cloud installation which is like a, a self-hosted docker uh, docker self-hosted <laughs> dropbox, dropbox uh, yeah dropbox style uh, thing with you know it's got a bunch of plugins and stuff you can, you can kind of need stuff 
all my photos go on there, all my documents on there, various kind of things that I want to back up are all onto there. That's all up on Scaleway onto a persistent volume stored there. That's then replicated uh, to my local Mac on my, on my home network through a, through a, a built-in sync client that it's got. Okay. Um, and then also on my phone as well, um, I can choose the sort of the particular directories and stuff to sync. So like the photos are synced. And I've also got like uh, important documents synced. So things that I kind of need to access. So uh, car insurance doc uh, details for one, uh, I, I make sure it's synced to my phone. So I've always got access to it. things like that. So it's, it's kind of replication in that, in that sort of sense. The redundancy is, is built in to that kind of setup. Some of the other stuff that I've got, um, YOLO. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> for most of it, it's, it's not a huge issue if I lose it. Um, the, those documents, yeah, they're critical, so they're, they're replicated. That's part of the that's, that's part of the whole package, really. That's one yeah. reason you wanted it. Um, and I said photos is in there as well. Things like Git, um, I've already got them all locally anyway from working on them. Uh, they then get all my public ones. Then, like I said, then get replicated to all the uh, you know. Uh, GitHub, etc. The only other thing really on there that's an issue if I lose it is uh, my self-hosted uh, Docker registry. It's got all my Docker images. Uh, again, that's on the on Scaleway on the cloud. So that's actually backed up to an S3 compatible object store that Scaleway have got. Um, so it's not too bad. But if I lose that, all I've got to do is run all the builds again, and they'll get put back. Um, so I've got you know CI that's set up to, to get those it's losing a few days of your life, but like, as long as I get the CI/CD stuff back up, uh, <laughs> I just got to you know click some buttons and leave okay. it to to do its job. Okay, so CI/CD, do you run your own on that, or are you running a cloudy one? Oh, please tell me you're not Tecton. running your own Jenkins. No, Tecton. So Tecton is a Kubernetes native CI/CD tooling. Um, it's not like it's not like Jenkins where it's a kind of a ready to go product, it's more mm. building blocks. So if you've come across Jenkins X before, uh, that's actually built on top of Tecton. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tecton kind of provides you with um, custom resource definitions and stuff in Kubernetes for you to define what a task is, what a pipeline is, what an event listener is and this kind of thing. And then you can, you can wire those all together. So I've got pipelines set up to, to kind of build all my applications. So it'll it'll check it out. It'll it'll then run you know a build, a publish, and all that kind of thing. Um, and then that's that just kind of all is triggered from my Git instance with with webhooks. Um, so every time I push stuff up, it, it triggers that, and that's all within the same same cluster. So it, it doesn't even need to go out to the internet to trigger it. Oh wow! Yeah. So so Tecton. I see big things in the future from it. it. It's already come a long way. So I'm, I'm quite a few versions out of date at the moment because of how quick it's been uh, uh, developing. It's still kind of pre-release sort of, it's not, I, I don't think I, if I was using Jenkins for everything, I wouldn't drop Jenkins and switch to this, um, like on the get-go, but at, like at work, for example, we've started using Tecton for um, PR tasks uh, kind of jobs. So linters, format checkers, things like that. So all these kind of 
self-contained tasks that you want to run against a, a pull request, we're doing those all on Tekton because it can be all done individually. Whereas like with Jenkins, you'll often see the whole like pipeline. It, it, it's very much a pipeline kind of thing. So you either have yeah. to have tons of Jenkins jobs that are all pipelines and can get a bit, a bit, a bit, 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 bit much to manage. Whereas with the, the Tekton, it's very nice. We can have these individual things and they all just trigger off. So like I can open a pull request and then like five tasks will start running and you know, it's, Go linting, go formatting. It'll check the format of my markdown files, that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, and that, like I said, that's all building blocks. So, so, so you can then extend Tekton to, to have more. And they've they've even now on um, ArtifactHub.io, uh, you can actually look for Tekton uh, pipelines that other people have built and and get them from there as well. So it's 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 very much like coming along in, in like a community building it sort of thing. Oh, wow, it's starting to sound a lot like um, the CircleCI orbs process, where they've mm. got the vendor and the community-specific ones, where they've taken these blocks, the pipelines, and condensed it into a single object use for people to reuse. Yeah, it's kind of like, so yeah. So, so a pipeline is just a, a a resource in Kubernetes. So you it, like like you have a deployment resource in Kubernetes or, or a config map or whatever. Uh, a pipeline is just one of these that can then either have inline tasks defined in them or it can reference other tasks that are themselves resources. So you can have like this reusability and, and com composability as well. Bloody heck, you Sorry. really are drinking the complete <laughs> Kubernetes Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am a bit. It, it, it's not a bad thing. It's just like, Oh wow! Literally everything you're playing with and you're building with has a Kubernetes element to it. Yeah, it's, it's my day job, so yeah. It, it, you know. All right. What about the smart home side of things? Because we've got that as a talk, talking point, and that's something of big interest to me. Yeah. Have you infected IoT with Kubernetes? Not exactly. No, I haven't got that far, unfortunately. Um, uh. I do leverage my two clusters to allow private access to my home IoT stuff while I'm away. Um, so I use a project called Inlets um, that allows me to for, allows my home cluster to call my cloud cluster and create a secure connection to only allow them specific traffic through and have it authenticated on the cloud side and all this kind of thing. It's quite nice. So it al ah. allows me to access um, Home Assistant, which is what I run. Um, on my, on my, actually, I run that on a, a Raspberry Pi at home um, that allows me to to control all my smart home stuff. Um, so Home Assistant is is a, an open source project that basically allows you to control, automate, manage pretty much any smart device that you could potentially come across. They have like hundreds of different integrations that you can use. You know, like um, Philips Hue bulbs, you know, all the IKEA stuff, all that sort of stuff. There's there's capabilities uh, in there for that. Ah, so you've gone down the hope. I'm not going to lie. I've been done the lazy route, and uh, I'm going to. I use Alexa <laughs> for simplicity because uh, just mainly because I started out. Yeah, I got into the smart home thing through just going. What's the cheapest and laziest way to wire up speakers across my entire apartment? Well, I can go Sonos and be broke, or I can use .2s and get decent speakers in every room of my apartment. So we've got an Echo in almost every room in the house, except for the bathrooms. I have one in the bathroom. 
is that for when you're soaking in the tub? You want to play a bit of music? You got the candles going. It's yeah. bit, for some odd reason. I was di- I disliked the fact that I could walk around my entire pl- apartment listening to music that was uh, equalized across the entire thing, and then I walked into a dead room. <laughs> so, this is weird. So I I put an echo an old echo one in there. A dot one, sorry, not an echo. Yeah. That would be a huge waste. <laughs> but okay, so you've gone down the homebrew route, but you're still using proprietary kit. How are you gluing all that stuff together then? So with Home Assistant, I actually go with uh, with the cloud offering from uh, Nabokasa, which allows uh, you to, which very nicely allows it to expose all your items to uh, Echo. There are other ways of doing it, but. Uh, I got to a point where I just couldn't be bothered anymore and just, you know, pay for that subscription. It allows me then to everything that I've got defined in Home Assistant can then be exposed to uh, my my Alexa um, setup. And then I can decide, you know, which I want to actually configure with it and which I don't. Which means um, you get to take full, adve- uh, full advantage of uh, Lex for actual voice activation because trying to run any of that stuff on a home network is yeah resource intensive i think is a polite way of putting it so you take advantage of lex for doing the actual voice interaction but everything else is wired managed and secured at your end yeah oh maybe i should look at that having having the echoes everywhere is very much it gets the family on board with it because you know my daughter alone will spend half of her day just talking to Alexa to ask her questions or play music and things. So, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should uh, consider going the home assistant route because I use a crap ton of cheap Chinese uh, electronics. And you can't fault the hardware. The hardware is actually for the price, the price to performance is fantastic. Like uh, Mm. my office is rigged up with all of the smart lighting is cheap Chinese knockoff. I have Govi, which are, I believe, are they Chinese or Korean? I think they may be Chinese. Sure. But RGB light strip behind me, RGB bulb, RGB bulb, they're all made by diff. I'm pretty sure they're the same OEM, but they're all different Chinese uh, yeah. distributors. It's like, oh, maybe yeah. I should consider Home yeah. Assistant as a way of making sure that I know what the heck traffic's going in and out. Yeah. So I've, I've got a lot of that sort of stuff. So um i've got a lot of um cheap chinese uh wi-fi cameras as well that i've got set up around the house for cctv so i've got um uh, what's called neos cam i think it's just what the name is in in the uk and they're like 40 quid mini cameras like yay big and uh the cool thing about those is there's an open source firmware that you can flash to them to get rid of all the uh chinese cloud-based communication stuff so you can run them completely locally so i use my cluster my local cluster at home with a custom built cctv application to talk to all of those cameras and pull off over the local network only so you've taken a cloud is it originally essentially a chinese knockoff equivalent to nest or blink flashed it and turned it into a local ip camera yeah effectively yeah that's actually really clever. So you get the advantage of the, because the, obviously the hardware is always sold cheaper because it's like, ah, they're going to be taking advantage of our cloud subscription yeah. services. Or we resell your data or whatever, however they decide to make their money. Exactly. So you get the cheaper, because when you look at IP cameras, surprisingly, pretty friggin' expensive. 
Yeah, so I do have one of the uh, Ubiquiti cameras as well. Those are fantastic, um, but bugger me, they hurt financially. Yeah, so the one that I've got, you can't actually get hold of anymore. It's the, uh, I can't remember what it's called. No, it's like the, the Bullet Mini or something. It's, it's a very nice little device. Stop making them. But yeah, they, they for the amount that I wanted, yeah, my, my wallet wasn't happy with that. <laughs> You can't fault ubiquity like their Wi-Fi equipment, their like their home security stuff is, and the fact that it's all designed so that you can run it against Ubiquiti's own home kit or open source home kit, but it's designed yeah, to run yeah. it only inside your network. You cannot fault that. Just mm. please stop hurting my wallet. My credit cards can't take this damage. Yes, if I had the money, my house would be kitted out completely. I have been looking at buying a Ubiquiti access point because my old Asus router is, well, it's eight years old. It's showing its age, considering it's only Wi-Fi AB. Yeah. I, I, I can recommend getting a, a mesh a hotspot set up around the house. That's, that's what I've ended up going with. Unfortunately, I only live in a two-bedroom apartment, so I don't need that much. It's more just a case of those old AB it's just like those old AB routers were not designed for the amount of devices I now have connected to it. They were originally designed for about 10 or 15 continuous devices. I think I yeah, have about 30 IP devices alone for IoT kit. My home I, network's up to 83 devices when I last checked. <sighs> I can't really put it in UCP or something because there's no way you're managing to keep all that alive on the internet. Yeah, yeah. So um, all my devices on my local network uh, are all uniquely identifiable through a host name that equates to the periodic table. So I've, I've got a few more devices I can get, but there's going to be a limit where I'm going to have to start discovering particles and, and discovering new elements to, to be able to name more devices, I think. I think you've just made most uh, office IT <laughs> administrators cry just a little bit. Oh, good. And, and just th like, just think about this because you've got that's all the active equipment you have on the network. Just that's think about all not not all of it's technically active. Um, so some of it's like maybe uh, tablets that I don't particularly use anymore or, or things like I that. I was about the majority to say of it is the dead hardware on that list as well because I have my yeah. box of dead hardware. For any dead hardware that's, that's gone, that's, you know, got rid of, that's off, taken off the list. This is this is literally stuff that I could go and reach and make use of. Um, so like a lot of the old, um, like I've got Raspberry Pis knocking around that um, aren't currently doing anything, but are, are you know, are, are ready to, to to go sort of thing for when I need to hack on something. And he uses the term hack, and it makes me feel so nostalgic. But I haven't done a <laughs> hack project in a while, and I really miss it. Mate, come on. It's, well, it's quite it, like you're quite you build stuff most of the time which is useful at home or experimental <laughs> i always used to build things that just make wanted to make people laugh <laughs> yeah i can't think of any of that stuff to build at home right now uh ladies and gentlemen i should also point out that uh, marcus is the man who invented hack furnace or one of three people who invented it during the course of one weekend yeah, yeah. It ended up being like two separate websites 
uh, sprung open. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was I was considering wearing my t-shirt as well for this, but I, I thought that'd be a bit bit much for you. Uh, my my little heart couldn't take that. I'd either cry of joy <laughs> or shame. Not sure which one. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, um, just as an FYI, Hack Furnace is a way of uh, taking the piss out Hack Furnace and, the, and uh, well, not Hack Furnace the event, but directly taking the piss out of me. Like one of them was a Twitter bot which claimed every time I said the last Hack <laughs> Now, I can't remember who built that. I have a sneaky feeling it was you, but I'm not entirely that, sure. No, that one, that, I don't think that one was me. It's either you or Pandelis. I'm not entirely sure. can't remember. Either way, but yes, so the trolling is strong, and uh, but uh, Marcus is very well known for building rando stuff. Actually, what was the last random thing you built? Uh, what, at uh, Hackfronts or just in general? In general. Like, well, ha the last Hackfronts is at this point, uh, by the year count, three years ago. Yeah. So, what was the last rando thing you I built? Don't because of lockdown and stuff, there's been no kind of hack events that I've been to, so I've not really been doing anything at home. So, not even with the 3D printing and or like trying to make some weird gimbal for an IoT device that does. Mm. I have I have just printed yesterday a, a whole like desk mount thing for my iPhone watch and headphones to charge on. Does that count? Yes, uh, well, <laughs> um, unless you decided to just go and grab an existing image and use mm -hmm. it, you did no. the actual design yourself. Then that counts as a hack, in my opinion. <laughs> that's just. I have, also got, I have also got a bunch of custom lighting that I've I've done with uh, little EST eighty two six. The uh, the little coffee uh, um, Arduino knockoffs. Ah yes, see the, on the on the webcam. The one, if I remember correctly, those are the ones that are paying the butt because they're three point seven rather than five volt. No, no, these ones are five volts. Oh, you lucky duck! The last time I had those, they were the um, same chip, but they were a three point seven volt. I think I think that's the ESP thirty two. I think something mm. like that. Um, I yeah, burnt I've out got, about four of them before I found out because they were they cost like forty pence. A yeah, I, I was like. Why does this not work whenever I put turn it on? Oh, the voltage supply is completely wrong. Yeah. It's but a good I thing have, I bought uh, a box of them. Yeah, I have, I have five more of them show up uh, this week. So, yeah, I've got, <laughs> got a few more to do. Hang on. A few more. You've said, oh, I've not built anything recently. You've just got five more tiny hackable devices turn up. Yeah. And a whole strip of RGB addressable lights that I'm going to you know, make everything look pretty. Oh, so you're actually to the point where you're making your own smart home kit. Yeah. Okay, yeah. what's the craziest <laughs> what's the craziest or weirdest smart home thing you've built so far? Because you like automating your life. So is it something to automate your life or something to make pretty? So the thing that I've been working on recently is uh, lighting for my shelves that will kind of shine down onto it and, and light up the little models that I've got. Uh, on display. Um, that's, that's pretty. It's a bit boring though. Um, another thing that I've been trying to make is, um, uh, do you know what a, a lithophane display is? So it's a, it's um, Sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have, 
this is with 3D printing. So you print out like a, a, a rectangle and you shine a light behind it and then an image becomes visible and it's based on the, the depth of the, the plastic, basically. Yes, this is based on old um, Victorian techniques with the uh, metals and, yeah, yeah. like, okay, yeah. cool, yeah. So I've, I've, been, I've been tinkering around with building basically a little light box that has uh, photos around the edge with a, uh, you know, lights up in, inside and it then uh, emulates a Philips Hue bulb so you can then control it with Alexa. Oh, wow. Yeah. Applying all of the rando hacky crap to get it together. Yeah. Okay, so you, that's the physical side of thing. And you said you switched, you were a JavaScript. When I met you first, you were a JavaScript dev. You like, yeah, what's that? JavaScript dev for, for years, yeah. Yeah, um, it reminded me of, um, oh God, T-Bass. Uh, Andrew, what's his face? Uh, Nodecopter. Oh yes, yes, yes. Yes, uh, where, because he was one of the first full stack Node people in the UK, but this going back. Yeah. 2012 2013 when node was still pre an actual version it was a naught point release yeah, yeah. um and then because not long after that i then met you and you were a full stack javascript dev but like the bleeding edge <laughs> i think you introduced me to the johnny five library god like over five years ago no yeah about six years ago now even more than that yeah 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 um so i knew you were always into iot hacking because Johnny Five, and you're a JavaScript dev building rando stuff that glued web interfaces to actual <laughs> things. Yeah. How was the transition from JavaScript, which is a very organic and, um, well, shall we say low barrier to entry language, to Go, which is an engineer's language? And by engineers, I mean it was designed by engineers for good computing practices and you can't get away with doing hacky little things that you can in JavaScript to get the job done. Yeah, so that, that, I do miss that. So being able to just very quickly spin up a bit of code to test something out is not so much a thing with Go. Um, I think the main thing I struggled with was the um, being able to have dynamic interfaces uh, that dynamic object interfaces so like in, ah. in javascript you can just add new properties to it to an object on the fly you can you can you know you can change it to whatever you want you've got it you've got an array here yeah we can change it to an object we can change it to a number whatever don't care in hmm. go you know it is a strongly typed language um and that going from that transition from javascript to go that was the, the first thing that kind of really hit me because i because i wanted to do a lot of um calling api you know calling rest apis and then doing something with that data but to do that i then had to model the the responses that i was going to get as a struct so i can then you know pass that response into an object to then work with if that rest api returned you know dynamic types if, if, if what it returned wasn't a fixed thing it became tricky and yeah there are ways you can do it in in go by having just like untyped interfaces and, and and do it like key value kind of thing but it's 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 built in such a way that that is strongly discouraged um for mm. good reason you know for, for what for what the purpose of the language is but yeah and that, using eval in a static kind of... language oh. <laughs> eval is you know uh, highly 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 not recommended in a dynamic language like javascript use eval you're a bad human 
Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, ladies and gentlemen, everything you've just heard from Marcus is true, and please do not use eval in your code if it's going into production. <laughs> yeah. Unless okay. it's in a bash file. I've used it in bash file a few times. Yeah, bash is a different beastie, though. Yeah. As far as I can tell, bash is both the most evil and most flexible language the planet has ever said. Well, spoken, written, communicated in something. <laughs> yes. Okay, right. So we spoke earlier about the fact that you're a, a, a YAML developer with uh, templating techniques around it, but you've also just mentioned Bash, and I know for a fact that Bash is the DevOps engineer's best friend and their worst nightmare. Oh, Which yeah. do you prefer having to get, uh, like, the emergency? Because there's always every company, I don't care where you work and how good your business practices are and your software practices, there's always the emergency hotfix. And there will always be the emergency hotfix where something, for some unforeseen reason, has gone peak tong um, outage in AWS and you need something to glue two different DCs together because it wasn't originally designed to do that or something. Do you go to bash scripting or go scripting to do it? I think it depends on the environment that it's in. Like if if it's in a container, I'll go go generally, um, just because Go suits containers fantastically. If it's something that I need to do on the fly, it'll be Bash. Um, just just throw a script together and get it get it running. If it's something that maybe needs a bit more grunt, I may throw JavaScript out there and, and do it that way. <gasps> you still scripting JavaScript? Not so well these days. It's yeah, my my yeah, my JavaScript is quite appalling these days. That's fine. That sounds like my Python and my PHP. <laughs> oh, don't get me started on my Python. I, I I still claim it's like I can read Python really easily. Get me to write it. <sighs> this is gonna take a while. All the tabbing, it hurts. Yeah. Need brackets. It's also one of the reasons why I'm scared of Go. Where where are my brackets? Luckily, there's a plugin. No, sorry, you have braces. You don't have brackets. For yeah, that's it's. Um, uh, luckily, there's a VS Code template which uh, in uh, uh, thingy where it like in in the linting puts it in there so I could read it correctly as if it was JavaScript. Because I'm still a dirty JavaScript person. <laughs> how how do you handle all the all the error handling then? So, so uh, one of the main one of the main things that everybody knows you go when they first start using it is how there's no there's no exception handling. There is just error objects that you return, and you just return them everywhere. So pretty much every call to a function will likely return an error object and maybe the actual value that it needs. So after every call you're doing, if error is nil, something's gone wrong. Let's fix it. Sort of thing. Well, lucky for me, I also spent. Uh two and a bit years uh, working only in serverless where yeah. you can't do exceptions because you can't handle them correctly. So everything has to be an <laughs> error object. Catch exception, convert to error, process error, which is yeah. dirty, but is the only way when you're going, uh, when you have a little bit of Python, a little bit of, uh, well, mostly JavaScript and some rando Docker images gluing everything together in AWS. Oh, you need to be able to handle it all in the same way. Fantastic. 
which is also yeah. the worst thing ever because having to uh, create error types is so annoying. Mm. Yeah, also, it's like, as far as I can tell, maintaining a glossary of er custom error types <laughs> there doesn't seem to be a nice solution anywhere on the internet for how you maintain this crap. It's most people have got like a Google Doc with it or a Confluence page or something. It's like who actually remembers to keep that up to date? Yeah, I've seen a few tools where if you do automatic uh, code doc generation, it can handle it quite nicely. So, like uh, in in Go, for example, the the code the documentation generation is is really nice. It's it's kind of encouraged heavily by the the linter as well, um, and you can generate then the the pages. And I think if I remember right, error objects can be identified individually. Yeah. Or they might just show up as types. I can't remember now off the top of my head. But I've seen I've seen some tools like that for JavaScript and stuff that are quite nice as well, where you can specifically identify something as, as an error and it then you know generates a whole page of them that you can refer to. I think that if you're gonna go for any sort of solution, that would be the least bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's no good solution, so let's go for the least bad one. Actually, to be fair, that's how that's I 90 percent of my work, so Oh, there is no good way. I don't have the time to make one. What's the least bad one for this situation? Yeah. That's DevOps, right? That's, that's, that's the definition. <laughs> Considering I've only spent the last two years getting it. So uh, I only started even considering DevOps when in the serverless space, when it was, we started gluing in things that weren't serverless, e.g. things you actually have to operate. It's not just dump code into the ether and let it do. To be fair, um, Heroku and its ilk of PaaS, fantastic pieces of software, gets the job done, makes you lazy for actually operating it because you rely on the fact they <laughs> auto restart everything when anything goes wrong. See, Kubernetes, that's where you got to go. The self-healing side of it is fantastic. Oh, God, I've got to learn about this stuff. I, You know what I tried doing? And, oh, God, we're going to actually go to Kubernetes now properly. It's like... Uh, <laughs> I want to talk about my fails. So over the last year, I've been getting, last two years, I've been getting into operations. So originally it was, how do we manage distributed logging across all of our stuff? How do we add all these components, which aren't self-healing? We actually have to operate and manage. Okay. Start to think about DevOps and learning from there. Then I spent the last year talking about observability and how you actually do the uh, data collection side of the DevOps world. And during that phase, it's like, okay, so this thing called Kubernetes, that's not scary at all with wide eyes and going, oh shit, in the back of my head. And then deciding one day, you know what, I'm going to learn how to use Rancher because if I go for a complete superset of it, maybe I'll learn Kubernetes along the way. Uh, <laughs> normally my way of learning the superset thing and picking up the underlying thing under the hood doesn't work. So I'm still thinking, and this is one of the problems, I need to learn more about Kubernetes right now. Um, why the heck are you not scared of Kubernetes? I think I'm too deep. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I completely get that. So when I first started looking at it, I spent maybe six months probably going back and forth investigating it before we actually started 
make use of it. Like, is that at work as well? Um, and in that time, when sorry, when we first started looking at it, we were still in a position where we didn't think Docker and containers was was the right approach for what we were we were working on. Um, slowly changed uh, over time, which obviously, and. Um, yeah, it, it took it took that whole long period to actually understand it and then actually go for a semi-managed solution. So one of these kind of um, self-hosted solutions, but where you can have a, a bunch of stuff set up for you uh, through an installer or whatever, um, to be able to get it into just a, uh, into a situation where we could at least run it um, and then start understanding bits of it. And the general way that we understood it was it, set fire and we had to work out how to put it out <laughs> a few times um so yeah we the, a lot of things have gone wrong and i've learned how to dig into things a lot that way um i don't know whether i'd recommend that or not but uh, <laughs> luckily i don't have an employer right now so setting fire things is fine it's all experiments yeah. but yeah. okay so you wouldn't recommend Building it, deploying it, and letting it burn in production. Not in production, I wouldn't know. <laughs> so, a funny incident. We actually had a situation where a production cluster was deleted overnight by a automated Jenkins uh, upgrade process. I still think Jenkins Thank is evil. So. Thankfully, everything kept running because it only destroys the control plane, not the worker nodes. So all the instances that actually had the applications on were still there. And as long as nothing went wrong with them, they would continue to be there. And traffic was being routed because you know it was going through an ALB direct to the EC2 instances in AWS, and that was fine. Just there was no Kubernetes controlling it anymore. Um, long story short, what happened was um, Jenkins pulled out an old Terraform uh, uh, state file um, somehow, went to do an automated update for like uh, updating the instances overnight kind of thing and accidentally rolled back the version of EKS, which is a destructive change. So it destroys and creates, which meant control plane gone. Um, but because it didn't do the worker nodes, they, they remained. Long story short, brought a new cluster back up and you know slowly moved the workloads over and switched to DNS. We had, I think, in total maybe I think it was fifteen minutes of intermittent issues uh, in production. That was it. So, yeah, okay. learned a fair bit through that process. <laughs> hang on, hang on. So, overnight script goes wrong. Okay, mm -hmm. this happened. Except it's um, it's kind of, it's kind of like the junior uh, junior developer deleting something that's important. Yeah, it happens. You accept it and you move on. It's kind of those scenarios where you go and make some changes to a database and then you notice you're in production. Mm. It's, that, it's that kind of thing, right? Yeah, everybody's been there and done that. And if they mm. say they haven't, they're lying. Or it's coming. Or, or it's coming, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, right, yeah. Uh, no matter how good you are, this is going to happen. Um, okay, so that's happened. But in this situation, you've lost all other than like the actual access to AWS and the actual instances themselves, you've lost all control of the application. Yeah. 
Holy moly, and that crap kept kicking along until you managed to switch over with only 15 minutes of intermission, uh, intermittent issues. Well, thankfully, they've got good applications. <laughs> you know, if, if anything had happened to one of those applications, then they, they uh, you know, uh, panicked and, and, and threw a, a termination error or whatever, those applications wouldn't have come back, whereas normally they would have with Kubernetes because it had noticed that, that, that something was wrong and, and recreate it. So thankfully that didn't happen. Oh, it, this was actually over a weekend as well. So this happened on the Sunday and found out on the Monday um, and things were fine. Oh, thank God you found out on the Monday. Could you imagine it happening on the Friday in two <laughs> days? The risk of a panic from a, a um, memory dump or something is probable. It's not possible. It, yeah, it's... Jesus. Okay, one, um, congratulations to the Elsphere engineers for actually building an application that doesn't suck. <laughs> And the ops team for noticing and fixing the problem pretty damned quick in that situation. Yeah. Jesus. Okay. So even with this, would you recommend people to start learning and playing with Kubernetes now? Considering oh, yeah, 100%. stuff is completely baked into it. You, your work is now pretty much completely baked into it. I'm pretty sure there's like with an organization the size of elsewhere there is probably some like stuff baked somewhere else it's like it's not worth transitioning but oh, yeah, like yes yeah, yeah. yeah, like jvm stuff that's like i oh, will just leave it until it dies and then we'll replace it um i mean we, yeah. we, we have some old blue screen style applications as well knocking around somewhere so yes yeah but it's like so okay so pretty much everything software related um from a coding perspective is built on top of underneath or around Kubernetes for you? To me specifically, yes. That's not necessarily the case across the whole organization yet. We're slowly moving in that direction. So what me and my team are working on currently is a um, kind of a turnkey platform for developers in the organization to use um, that's built on top of Kubernetes. So it'd be kind of a centrally managed, managed Kubernetes, if you get what I mean. <laughs> The, I no, kind of yeah. yeah, get you because um, Logs.io, uh, my previous employer, had something, I believe they called it Apollo, which did the same thing, uh, platform access, so engineers who weren't actually uh, DevOps focused, so didn't have much understanding of Kubernetes beyond yeah. images and containers, that's pretty much where their knowledge exactly. ended, uh, they could drop the images and deploy them as is, so you're going to just make an Elsevier, is it going to be an open source one or just one that is an internal tool? It's just going to be internal at this point. Okay, because yeah. it, it, it's basically just built on top of EKS. It's, it's it's pulling together all the best practices and tooling and stuff that we've already got. Because we've, we've got all these little individual bits that teams are already using, but all in like slightly different ways. They're putting this together with this, rather than, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and we just kind of all bring it together into a unified, okay, this is the way that it works best. Here you go, here's the whole thing. Right, you're essentially making this spaghetti diagram easier to read. Yeah, and automated. Automate everything. I'm pretty sure it's a t-shirt somewhere. Yeah. All right, I've got to ask then. Homebrew Kubernetes or cloud service? If cloud service, which cloud service? For learning or for oh, production? I personally would like to know for the learning. So I know I can roll up a K3S instance or Kate's, depending on if I 
so desire this resource usage because K3S is less resource intensive, but also is not a fully featured API set, if I remember correctly. It, 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 so K3S is what I'd recommend if you're going to go, um, you know, testing stuff out locally through like a home lab kind of thing. It's Kubernetes compliant. It's only missing like some of the more fringe features. Um, mm -hmm. Nothing that I've ever needed is, is missing from K3S. Um, so that's what I've previously used on some of my uh, home setups. At the moment, the one I'm running is uh, called Micro Kubernetes, um, which is available with Ubuntu. Um, the only reason I went for that over K3S is when I was reinstalling Ubuntu, it was an option as part of the installation process. So I was like, yeah, let's try it. <laughs> so it, yeah, it just handles part of that. I can just do the update to Ubuntu and it, it handles that as well, which is quite nice. Um, again, it's just, it's just Kubernetes with a few of the uh, fringe stuff taken out. If you were going to go for running production stuff um, and you didn't have kind of Kubernetes expertise and, and, and you wanted that um, confidence in it working, I'd go for one of the managed providers. So EKS uh, on AWS, AKS with Azure or um, whatever Google is called on, on GCP, I can't remember. Ironically, um, where it all started, nobody remembers that one. Yeah. Um, also, depending on your use case, a bunch of these have also uh, managed worker nodes that you can leverage as well. So you don't even have to worry about, you know, so if, you, if you're in AWS, for example, you don't have to worry about your EC2 instances either. They can all be managed for you and, and updated and all that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, if, if you wanted to, to leverage the features of Kubernetes um, without needing the full understanding up front, that's the way I'd, I'd suggest you go. Ooh, yeah, because- uh, so There obviously is then the cost involved and all that kind of thing, but- Yeah, but it's last time I was looking at EKS, like scared myself off and decided to use this. It's the reason I ended up using Sivo for a while originally was because I was going, well, I've got a, I've got a, uh, an R&D budget on AWS. It's hooked up to a card. It's got a hard limit. It's fine. It's play there. Have you seen the amount of CloudFormation for running uh, EKS manually with EC2 nodes? The amount of, and um, it's all CloudFormation because Terraform, you then have to, it then essentially has to compile into CloudFormation to execute on your behalf. So uh, ter Terraform goes against the API rather than CloudFormation. So we, we use Terraform for a lot of stuff at work. Because uh, last time I was looking at it, it was like CloudFormation. It's like the amount of CloudFormation to configure the security group, to configure the, just to build it, to get a single node. It, I was looking at somewhere about 100 and something lines of CloudFormation. So ter Terraform is a matter of Yeah, the, ter so the, the way the Terraform works is under the hood, it just uses uh, the Go libraries. AWS Go libraries and, and interacts with things that way. So it'll call the EKS uh, APIs, for example, as a uh, create cluster and that kind of stuff. Wow, okay. Just processing in my head, like, hmm, no, I think <laughs> I'm just going to do 3S and actually, no, micro. You said micro Kubernetes was the name of the. Yeah, micro K8S. Micro case. Yeah. Hmm. 
my docker my little uh, ubuntu box is shall we say old i think it's running uh, 14.8 um it's kind of old like i, I believe the current issue uh, version of ubuntu is 20 or 21 something like 20 i think not sure yeah the last major one was 20 if i mm, it's about time i updated it maybe i should just install that as well and then play mm, that's got nothing else to do at the moment <laughs> is called fun for a reason okay uh yeah okay let's go with a homebrew rather than think so huh, if uh, ladies the, and gentlemen so the alternative option is if you if you are just looking to hack around very quickly on, on something there's a project called kind k-i-n-d uh, which is kubernetes in docker which allows you to spin up kind of a kubernetes installation in a docker image um on, on your machine to then interact with and, and kind of test out ideas it's really good for like um cicd style things where you need to spin up a kubernetes cluster to test them out and then you know get rid of it again but if you are just trying to like work out how something works and not want to worry about destroying an existing setup you know just spinning up a, a throwawayable cluster in a docker image is is perfect for that Okay. One, I love the naming convention, but my brain is trying to deal with the um, containerception going on with that. You have a container yeah. being orchestrated by a container inside of a container. Just wait till you then deploy some of it onto that kind cluster that builds another Docker image. And yeah. <laughs> my brain can't process, and I'll just start drooling like I've just been in the electric chair. Yeah. Yeah, there's some much smarter people than me build these kind of things, and yeah. I, yeah, it's, it's weird. I consider myself to be not dumb. I then look at that <laughs> stuff and go, I'm not that smart. Yeah. Well, okay. Right. Uh, I have kept you chatting for well over an hour on this one. <laughs> so... Um, Thank you very much, Marcus. Right, uh, for those of you wanting to find Marcus on the internet and uh, badger him, heckle him, uh, say hi from the internet to him, uh, he is Marcus underscore Noble underscore uh, on Twitter and Average Marcus pretty much everywhere else. And um, I believe it's recorded and essentially a more concise and better structured version of this conversation uh, did come out of, uh, is it JS Oxford you said? Yeah. So if you wanted to go find that, find JS Oxford and you will find this talk, uh, well, essentially this conversation in a more structured talk format for you to actually dissect and learn yeah. from rather than ramblings of uh, two nerds. There was some rambling as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Ramble, ramble, ramble. The question is, did the entire talk come down to Kubernetes all the things? The talk was how it was presented from my Kubernetes clusters, if that helps. <laughs> so the, the slides that I was using were on my, my cloud provider. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if that's amazing, if that's Inception, or if that's bloody awful. Either way, it's a thing. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much, Marcus. 